So, um, well done for not going Christmas shopping this morning. That's all I can say. Um, so, it's a, it's a slight intimate affair this morning, um, but that's fine. Uh, it's good to see you, and it's good to uh, be together uh, this morning. Uh, my name's Steve, for those of you who don't know. Um, if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be diving in there in a sec. Um, this morning... Um, We're not just coming to the end of our teaching series that we've been doing for the last few weeks. We're also coming to the end of a year-long campaign uh, that we've been doing, the Year of Biblical Literacy. And so over this year, we kind of set ourselves this task and really asked ourselves the question, what what would it mean um, in an age where the depth of our reading is perhaps a blog post or uh, a social media update or a tweet or anything like that, in an age where that's the reality, what does it mean for us to become a people who are increasingly biblically literate? And and so we um, encouraged you uh, to make this year the year where you dust off your Bibles um, and um, begin to read them. Uh, And and, and so what we've been doing over this year, uh, we've been encouraging that to happen in lots of different ways. We've, We've been teaching over this year the kind of big themes of the Bible. And so we started uh, in Genesis, and we've worked all our way through, and we've been in the New Testament in more recent months, but we've just been teaching through the kind of big, overarching themes of the Bible. We've also encouraged you uh, as individuals to be reading your Bible. One of the tools that we suggested was the Read Scripture app and just the resources that that provides. And if you stuck to it every single day, then by the end of the year, you would have read the whole of the Bible. Now, it wasn't a pass or fail uh, test, although we're going to give Anne Willis a prize, okay? Uh, and, and Ken, maybe a close second. So, um, but, you know, um, we'd encourage you to just um, use those resources. And, you know, the new year is just around the corner, January the 1st. Just because the year of biblical literacy is over doesn't mean to say you can't do it again, okay? So January the 1st, download the Read Scripture app, and start again, start in Genesis and work your way through the scriptures. Another opportunity we've created this year is um, we've increasingly got more and more people engaging in theological study, which is really fantastic. And we've been using something called Vineyard Institute, which is a distance learning platform uh, that the Vineyard family of churches have put together. And so we've got a cohort of about 12 or so people who are going through a theological study uh, looking at the kingdom of God. And so we're really thrilled that that's, it's kind of spurred something on in individuals to think about uh, going deeper in the, in the scriptures. Uh, what we'd really love is to have more cohorts. And so if you're interested in uh, taking your interaction with the Bible further, then let us know. We'd love to see some new cohorts started in 2019. And so as we finish this year-long campaign, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the subject of the church. What is this thing we call the church? What do the scriptures say about the things that characterize uh, this thing called church? Uh, that, that church, we've looked at a few different things. Church is a, is a gathering of people like this, an, an assembly, the ecclesia, as we, as we looked at, that church is the, the body of Christ. Church is a, is a family, a household. Uh, and, and as we looked last week, that the church is the bride of Christ. 
uh, that, that Christ laid his life down for her. And, and, and so the church um, um, is, is all these things. You know, there's all these kind of metaphors and descriptions of what the church is like. But as we finish up this week, uh, I want to think about the kind of church Jesus builds. The kind of church that Jesus builds. So if you've, got, if you've turned to Matthew 16, we're going to pick up in verse 13. And it says this, when, when Jesus came to the region of Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say it's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is uh, an important portion of Scripture. It's often seen as this triumphalistic kind of statement, this declaration that Jesus says, I will build my church. That's kind of good news, isn't it? Because we often think it's our job to build his church. You know, we often think that if we try really hard and if we do enough fancy things, then we can build the church. But I kind of learned long ago that it's not my job to build the church. Thank goodness. Um, I might have a nervous breakdown. Um, But actually, it's Jesus' job to build his church. He's the one who's declared he will build his church and that nothing, nothing is going to stop it. But actually, this passage has far more to say than just that. And, you know, you, one of the, and actually, as we, you know, as we look at this, one of the things that we've learned from this year of biblical literacy is that context is everything when we read the scriptures, yeah? Understanding the context, understanding the seed of what's going on. So, um, and so as we open up this passage, we see Jesus and his disciples are in this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was an interesting place uh, for Jesus to take his disciples. It was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was at the base of Mount Hermon. And um, it, was a, it was established by the Greeks, uh, and it was really a sort of Hellenistic city where uh, they practiced the worship of primarily the fertility god Pan. So they, they worshipped a, an idol there. And, and being based at the, uh, at the foot of Mount Hermon, it, it butted against a, a large kind of cliff face, which was often referred to as the Rock of the Gods. As you can see here, there's an artistic impression of what that might have looked like. And, um, 
And they built these shrines at the, on the face of, of the rock, shrines that were built to the various gods. Um, and I say one of those gods being the god Pan. Uh, and so in, in, first century, in the first century, Caesarea Philippi um, would, would have been seen like the kind, of, the kind of Las Vegas of its day, only no lights and gambling, okay? But it was the, it was the original Sin City, and, um, which, which all centers around, as I say, this, this worship of this fertility god, Pan. And so Jesus intentionally goes with his 12 disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And, you know, I, I think that maybe they might have questioned his logic. You know, Jesus, do you, do you know where we're going? Do you know what they do there? Do you think that's a good place for us to go? You know, us good, wholesome Jewish boys. Do you think we should go to Caesarea Philippi? Now, at the center of that, um, of that rock of the gods was her huge cave. And I think I've got a picture of what it looks like now. It was this huge cave. And this cave was known as the Gates of Hades. It's known as the Gates of Hades. And from that cave originally flew, uh, fl- uh, flowed a stream uh, that was said to have endless depths. Okay, it was, it was this stream, this, this body of water that they never could measure. And, and, and they believed that the gods would enter and leave the underworld through this, this, this water, through the gates of Hades. And so when we read a passage of scripture like this, and when we can attach it to a real location that really exists, then actually um, it gives us a, a fresh context, or at least gives us a new lens to read the scriptures through. Do we, we understand that, don't we, how, how that, that kind of works? And so Jesus, he takes them to this point, and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, he's like, okay, guys, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? Who do people think I am? Now, I don't think Jesus was saying that because he was insecure. Okay? I don't think he was saying it because he's like, I just really need to know who I am. You know, like some like weird therapy session. But uh, Jesus, I think, is saying this for the, the benefit of his disciples. And, and so they respond and they say, so some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he makes his question a little bit more personal. He says, okay, guys, that's what other people say, but who do you say I am? What do you think? And, and, and this is where the disciple Simon Peter begins to shine. And if you, if you read through the the, um, the Gospels, you know that Simon Peter is often the kind of vocal disciple, uh, and he often is willing to speak. Um, sometimes he speaks and gets it majorly wrong, you know. Sometimes he gets it so wrong that Jesus calls him Satan, okay? So that's the kind of guy he is. He kind of speaks, 
Okay, you may have met people like that. If you're not sure what people like that are, it's probably you. Okay, um, but people who speak before they think. I imagine that's what Simon Peter was like. And on this occasion, he opens his mouth and he says it, and he's exactly right. He gets it right. It's like A grade out of the park. He's, he's got it right. He answers Jesus and he says this. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That Simon Peter recognizes straight away who Jesus is. And Jesus replies, says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So knowing that all we know about where, where Jesus and his disciples are standing and, 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 and kind of realizing what Jesus is revealing uh, in this place, it kind of gives us this, this fresh perspective. And so when Jesus says this in verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We kind of suddenly see, from understanding the context, understanding the geography, understanding the location, that, that this passage is far bigger than what we sometimes imagine. There's something more significant going on, that we can see a bigger picture. And, you know, throughout the ages and throughout church, different church traditions, uh, this passage of Scripture has been interpreted different ways. In the Catholic tradition, they, they take this pronouncement of Jesus very seriously. They, they take this moment to mean that Jesus was declaring that the church was built solely on the authority of Peter's leadership. And we get the papacy as a, a, as a result. And, um, and that, that this authority has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, it's true that Peter was a leader in the, the first century church. And, and, and it, you can kind of see how they get, kind of get that perspective. But then there's the view of the Protestant church, which we stand in and the church that we uh, identify with. And and, and we would interpret this passage differently. We would say that Jesus, when he declares, I will build my church, he, and he, he's, he's, he's saying that Peter, he's, he's saying upon the confession that Peter has made, upon the recognition that Peter had of who Jesus was, upon that foundation, Jesus is going to build his church. And I think scripturally and and through orthodoxy, that's probably a, a better interpretation. We still love Catholics, okay? Um, just to say. But I think there is another way of interpreting this passage as well. Um, and particularly as we look at the context. And so as we, as we um, lean into a slightly different interpretation of this passage, I think it gives us this new kind of prophetic meaning, um, that it speaks in some ways of the calling and identity of this thing we call the church. You see, Jesus could have taken his disciples anywhere that day. Maybe they could have gone to the Sea of Galilee, caught up with some old friends. Maybe they could have gone to the synagogue and, and argued with some religious teachers. 
but instead he takes them to the most ungodly of places, the most pagan of places. And in that place, Jesus makes this amazing statement. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. In this place, I'll build my church. Now I think, might it be possible that Jesus was pretty clever, okay? That he, he, he knew what he was doing. And um, that, that in many ways he had a strategy. And he knew how to make a point, yeah? He knew how to, to make a, 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 something a reality. And so he takes his, his disciples to the lowest and most degenerate of places and he says, this is where I'm going to build my church. This is the, the kind of place that I will build my church. That he, he wants to build his church where, where sinners and pagans dwell, where, where those far from God can be found, where, where the name of God isn't recognized. And he says, that's where I'm going to build my church. He wants to go to the places where there's broken and hurting people, places uh, that are like hell on earth. That's where he wants to build his church. That's the kind of place that he wants. That's the kind of church Jesus builds. So over the last few weeks, as we've looked at some different metaphors for the church, and as we've, as we've done that, no matter... You know, the thing that we come back to time and time and time again is that no matter how messy church gets, no matter how messed up we can be, no matter how much church hurts us, no matter how much church lets us down, no matter how much church misses the point, the church of Jesus is this beautiful thing. It's this wonderful thing. And so in light of that, as we just wrap up this series, as we wrap up this year of biblical literacy, I just want to briefly talk about four things that characterize the church Jesus builds. Some of these things we've touched on over the last few weeks, and I just want to summarize some of those things. Um, But that's what we're going to do for the next five minutes or so. So the church Jesus builds, first of all, it's a home. Paul, as he writes his letter to the Romans, Romans 12, 10, he says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. How many of us know the first thing about family is that we don't choose? We don't choose a family. And, and the, the reality is, is that families are messy things. You know, just think about your own extended family. Maybe you have siblings that fight. You have weird uncles that sit in the corner, you know, ignoring everybody. Um, you, maybe you have families that have been broken apart through separation or uh, divorce. Maybe you have teenagers in your family that are pushing the boundaries, uh, pushing your patience. Maybe some of you have uh, family members um, that have made something of themselves you know, and, um, and, and see themselves as slightly superior to you, okay? Um, I'm thinking like, you know, do you remember that? What was that TV program? Keeping Up Appearances. Do you remember, remember that? You know, you've got the one family that's like really kind of made it successful. 
and then you've got her sister. Um, you know, so some of us have got family members that have made it and are superior to everyone, and then some of us have got family members who uh, are skint and, and getting by by the skin of their teeth. I'll let you decide where you fit there. Um, some of us have family members um, that maybe if they weren't family, we wouldn't choose to hang out with them, um, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're honest, okay? Um, but that's what families are like. And, and church family isn't any different. It's full of misfits and down and outs and weirdos uh, and crazy grandparents and weird uncles. You know, it's full of people who earn lots of money, people who have none. It's, it's full of students and the educated and those who barely got by in school. You see, the church is full of go-getters and down-and-outers. That's, and that's what family is like. And sometimes we can see the messiness of that family and think, you know what? I don't have the energy for this. That's how I feel most Sundays. But, um, and, you know, we're trained um, in most social settings, aren't we, to, to just flit in and out. You know, if we don't like it, we just duck and run. Uh, if there's someone we don't like or someone who's difficult or someone who offends us, we don't have to deal, deal with it. We don't have to work through it. We just move on to the next thing. But that isn't the church. <laughs> that isn't how the church behaves. Groucho Marx famously said, I don't want to belong to a club that will accept me as the member. But that isn't the church that Jesus builds. That isn't the church that, that Jesus builds. That isn't how it works. But the church is a community that will have anyone as a member. Um, it will have anyone. You can turn to the person and say, even people like you. <laughs> it's a place where anybody can call church home. And, you know, people often end up in church for lots of reasons. <laughs> There'll be lots of reasons why they end up here, but they usually stay for one, and that's relationship. And I, I just want to encourage you. You know, at the end of the year, and, you know, we're, in a few weeks we're going to be stepping into a new year, but what would it look like for you in 2019 to take a deeper step into the life of the church? What would it be to be a person who stops ducking and running and, and thinks, oh, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to connect. I'm going to choose to commit and, and um, hang out with other misfits like me. That's what I'm going to do. And so, and so I've got a little bit of a challenge here. On the 6th of January, when we do our big church celebration... And we bring all our locations together. We're going we're gonna to be opening up the sign-up for our groups. And what would it look like for you if you haven't been a person who's been part of a group this year? What would it look like for you to just say, you know what, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to take that next step. I'm going to choose to step, step into community. And you know what? I know I can't control the outcome of that. 
I know that there's a potential if I hang out with people every week for 10 weeks, someone's going to upset me. Or someone's going to do something to offend me. Or, or, you know, or you might be encouraged. You might have someone come alongside you and say, you know what, you're doing a great job. You might have someone come aside you and pray and say, you know what, Jesus wants to move in your life this way. Or he wants to do this. But what would it look like for you in this next season to take that step? To go from being someone who just shows up here and then runs away again to being someone who says, I'm going to make a home here. And part of making a home here is, 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 is choosing to connect with others. So the church that Jesus builds is a home. The church that Jesus builds is a hospital. St. Augustine famously said, the church is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. You know, hospital, hospitals aren't always great places to be. They're often really hot. Uh, <laughs> The food is rank, yeah? Uh, you know, you have to smuggle in a McDonald's if you're in hospital for any prolonged period of time. Uh, they're not great places, great experiences to have. They're, you know, it's, it's not great. Um, but if you're sick, if you're recovering from an operation or whatever it may be, it's the best place for you to be. Yeah? It's the best place that you can be. Hospitals are a place where sick people get better, unless you contract some sort of viral disease. Um, um, Jesus in... (laughs) I'm not saying a word. Um, Jesus in Matthew 9, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Pope Francis said recently, the thing uh, the church needs most today is the ability to heal the wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. Heal the wounds, and you have to start from the ground up. So the church is meant to be a place where wounded people get healed, where they get well, where, where hearts are healed, where relationships are stored, where, where marriages are put back together, where, where friendships are birthed and, and, and put right. And the reality is, is all of us carry wounds, don't we? Many of us carry wounds um, that the church has helped to create, if we're honest, that we all have these wounds, but Jesus says, I'm going to build my church in such a way that the sick get well. The hurting are healed. Those who are wounded get restored. He restores our soul. And so the church is meant to be a place of healing, a place of change and transformation, a place where we can get well again. And, you know, over this coming year, we, we want to create lots of opportunities for people to get well, to, to find restoration, to find health for their souls. In the, in the new year, um, giving you some insider information now, I won't tell the second service, then you'll feel superior. Um, but in the new year, we're going to be doing a, a whole teaching series around emotional health and what it looks like to be emotionally healthy people. And, and, and so we believe the Lord wants to do some stuff in healing our hearts and restoring our hearts. So the church 
is a hospital. The third thing is the church that Jesus built is a school. That the church has a role to equip. In Ephesians, it says that he calls some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and and pastors and teachers. In other words, he calls some people to leadership in order to equip the saints for works of ministry, for works of service. And that as we step into community and find a home, as we get healed in the process, in the hospital, we're then trained and equipped that, that we, we begin to learn what it means to, to follow Jesus with, uh, and what it means to be like him. See, when I was at school, um, most of my school reports were, were like, a capable child could do better. Or, you know, um, he has the ability, but he just needs to apply himself. Anybody, anybody else have those kinds of, of reports? Yeah, I'm not alone. Good students apply themselves, don't they? Um, or another way of putting it is good students take responsibility. Take responsibility. And, you know, one of the things that we felt as we step into this new season of a, as, a, as a church family is that we need people who follow Jesus to take responsibility. You know, I, I, I can't make any of you more like Jesus. Um, I'm struggling to do that for myself, okay? And so it takes each one of us, uh, this, this moment where we say, we need to take responsibility. We need to take responsibility for what discipleship looks like in our lives. And so again, in the, in the new year, we want to push the pedal on what a disciple looks like. What does it mean to be a person who, who gets to be with Jesus? What does that look like? And then what does it mean to become like him? What does it mean to do the things that Jesus did? And I think it all comes down to you and I bearing some responsibility for that, applying ourselves, being a student of what that means. And so look out for those opportunities. And then the last thing is, is that the church Jesus builds is a troop. Um, it sounds a bit more positive than army. Um, that we are a people in active combat. We're not called to stay here. We're not called to, you know, just get healed and create a holy club. But we're called to go. To be, as Jesus said, the salt and light of the world. You know, Jesus has given us a vision to plant six new locations of Central Vineyard um, across this area. And I believe some of you in this room will be the ones to go and do that. That over the next couple of of years, God will stir something in people's hearts and they'll go. And they'll go and be part of that to lead people and bring life in new places. And and, and part of that call to plant these expressions uh, of churches that God has called us to, it means warfare. It, It means we're waging war. On, on the principalities and powers. Uh, and there, there's some significance in that. And so we have to be on the offensive, don't we? We have to take steps. So it's more than just a nice mission trip. It's a troop of people. It's a battalion of people going and waging war on the enemy's schemes. Others of us in this room 
over the next few years, maybe called to go to other places. Maybe called to go to the deepest, darkest places. Places like Caesarea Philippi. And I believe God will speak to individuals that we feel that God has called us to also have a heart for the nations. That what does it look like for us to be a sending people? that send people to go to these various places. And so all that's to say is that, you know, we are the church of Jesus Christ. You know, and Jesus... Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus said the church was always his plan A. There's no plan B. You know, he loves his church, even when we think it stinks. You know, he, he, he has a plan for his church. And he sees his church playing a significant part in the redemptive work of God in our city, in our region, in our nation, and in our nation's that the church is his idea. And we get to be part of that. We get to make that happen. We get to be the people who contribute to that. 